When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he knows that Magic has a color pie and he hopes that that includes like apple pie and pumpkin pie and key lime pie and sorry, now I'm just hungry. Uh, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, I, I don't know how many sinuses I have and I also don't know how many of them are acting up. But I do know it's just enough to make it sound like I'm a frog this week. So um, welcome to 2022, everybody. We're off to a great start. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, Matt, but we appreciate you powering through. You know what? You've, you've got a, a frog in your throat. You said it's Gitrog. It's Gitrog's fault. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, I do know that I look through the show notes and listeners, this episode is going to be absolutely riveting. No, you no, Dang it. That yeah, it is. <laughs> I'll, I never change, Matt. We love you. I'm not going to. <laughs> My voice will change, hopefully for the better in the future. <laughs> there you go. Up next, when he heard that magic has a color pie, he thought that it meant like 3.14. But no, it turns out, bring on that key lime pie again. It's Dana Roach. Did you know, Joey, that, that actually 3.14% of all sailors are pirates? Pirate. Dana, the, the best Dana? thing about oh pie jokes is they never end. <laughs> oh man, you guys, you guys are getting me good. I like this a lot. Anyway, this is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, tell us, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? We are talking about planning ahead in commander. That we are. This is a, a cool topic that you had proposed for this episode, which I'm actually really excited to talk about because there are a bunch of different contingencies that you have to estimate could occur in different commander games, things that maybe you have to stop your opponents from doing or specific things that could happen to your specific commander deck that is just kind of cool to see what different plans we as players or that specific commanders have to make to have a successful EDH game. So it should be a really fun show to get into. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, let's pause and think Josh LeQuay and the folks at the Command Zone podcast for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. Yeah, the Idiot Trackcast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, the Soul Ring and Mana Crypt of online retailers. <laughs> Just go to the card in question on our website and click on the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so and also get yourself some sweet perks at the same time over at patreon.com slash EDH We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to view all of our historic challenge of stats picks, you want to check out all the episodes a day early, maybe even there's all that and more over at patreon.com slash EDH And just because we do appreciate our patrons oh so very much, we actually have a patron that we shout out every single week. And this week we're going to give a very special, very hard thank you to Toby Tomany. So uh, Toby, too many, too, too many. <laughs> I've spent too many times trying to attempt your last name, Toby. Um, so my apologies. I, I'm sure that Toby has never heard that joke before in his life. Thank you so much, Toby. You you can't have too many name puns. I just, <laughs> you, you tried to do it 3.1415 times, Matt. We are going uh, that, to move on, you guys. That is too many <laughs> pie puns right there. Thank you so much to our... Un unlike frogs, that joke does not have legs. <laughs> we, 
We're going, we're going forward. All right, let's talk about planning ahead for different commander contingencies. And I think we'll start broad and then narrow down to some specifics in the latter half of the show. So Dana, let's actually uh, throw it to you, specifically when it comes to planning ahead. I assume that there are some general things that you always like to make sure that you have when you are making a commander deck. Specifically, for instance, one of the things that you would plan ahead for is to make sure you are packing some pinpoint remote spells so that your opponents can't just run willy-nilly with the game you want to be able to remove the stuff that they're doing so what are some pinpoint removal spells that you always or have a, a penchant for when it comes to games of commander to help make sure that you've planned accordingly i mean this is one of those areas you know i try to build interesting unique decks and try to do things a little bit different but, but the reality is Swords to Plowshares is the best, you know, <laughs> targeted creature removal spell in the game. And, and it's cheap most of the time. And so I, I have copies that are easy to get a hold of. I just run Swords to Plowshares in every deck that's running white. It's just, you know, the best creature removal spell. It exiles stuff. It's only one mana. Um, so this is an area where I tend to not get too creative. The, the best removal spells are just the best removal spells most of the time. I go for things that are efficient and to solve as many problems as possible. Um, there's just not, not a lot of variance, at least for the first couple I tend to run. If I'm playing white, I'm looking at swords and path. If I'm playing blue, I'm looking at reality shift and maybe pongify. There's just a couple I tend to run in most of my decks because it's a situation where when you start trying to get creative there, you're really just kind of handicapping yourself for the sake of handicapping yourself <laughs> the, the best spells are just kind of the best spells and no one gives you bonus points for removing their creature with something that costs four mana when you could do it for one for the most part well, this is kind of interesting, especially because, I, I don't know, when it comes to the removal spells, like, yeah, we always immediately default to the, the mono white ones that can exile. But I think it's also kind of an interesting shift to note, too, that I like I usually associate white and black as being some of the best pinpoint removal colors. But when it comes to EDH, like, I feel like blue is actually like right there, like reality shift, the two mana exile the creature and it's a, the opponent who controlled that creature gets to manifest the thing off the top of their deck. Like, that's cool with me. Or you mentioned Pong like one mana there that's hard to beat that's really 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 appealing so when i think of pinpoint removal i actually kind of prioritize like say i'm playing a blue and black deck i'm probably going to prioritize the pinpoint removal in blue over some of the ones in black and i think that's noteworthy i, I think this year they've kind of made up some ground a little bit um baleful mastery and infernal grasp both that came out in 2021 we're both really, really solid spells and have helped Black catch up. But I agree. It's been kind of a weird thing the last, you know, five or six years or so where in a Demir deck, you tended to run blue creature removal spells versus black because it just in commander, the, the, the creature they got back in exchange was way less relevant than it would be maybe in other formats. Well, and, and green. Green doesn't just not exist anymore when it comes to single target removal either. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, okay, maybe it doesn't like destroy your exile, but it changes what that permanent is on the battlefield. Um, Dana, you love Lignify. I love Song of the Dryads. Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of very good enchantment type removal. Now, yes, sorcery speed versus instant speed, the flexibility makes a huge difference in some play groups, but if that doesn't, then definitely want to give a look. If you're playing green, you, you you don't have to worry about not having any removal because you do have options there. And even red, like red has chaos warp and effort. <laughs> <laughs> Player removal is uh, permanent removal. Player removal is creature removal, yeah. Definitely, definitely true. Something that might come up later on in the episode, actually. And and also, Dana, I think it's so funny that you mentioned that, you know, oh, I don't have any particular proclivities when it comes to pinpoint removal, just use some of the best. And then you're like, but also, I've been playing a lot of Baleful Mastery recently, which is a card I don't even remember. I don't remember what that one does, bro. Like, that's just, <laughs> what is Baleful Mastery again? It, like, is the, it is the four mana black removal spell where you can do it, you can use it for two and someone draws a card. So for one and a black exile a creature or planeswalker and it's an exile effect and you give uh, yeah. the person you're about to kill a card or like make a deal with someone the person <laughs> who's not a threat give them a card yeah. okay, dana's so finding a way to be hipster even with cards from 2021 <laughs> 
there there you go but yeah that's an interesting one to look into because there's politics there but there's also like you're right giving someone a card when you're about to destroy them after removing their creature maybe not all that all that much of a thing so okay it's definitely some interesting things to note there but pinpoint removal is pretty known everyone's going to have a certain number of pinpoint removal spells in their deck and they're also going to have another category that's definitely worth mentioning here when it comes to planning ahead and that's board wipes Obviously, you are going to want to have some board clears. Commander board states can get extremely crowded, so having a typical Wrath of God or maybe a more thematic thing, let's say you're playing a life gain deck and you want to play Fumigate, so you're destroying all of the creatures and you gain life for them, that is another definitely important thing to have there. The famous Blasphemous Act. Board clears are super duper huge in Commander 2, so if you guys have any specific ones that really touch your heart, I guess, when it comes to board wipes, or is this, again, another the classics are, are, are the classics kind of situation? I think there's a lot more variance here than maybe there is in targeted removal. Um, I still really love Austere Command in, in, in white. Yes, it's six mana, but the flexibility there is super useful. Um, very rarely do I find myself just casting it as a bad, expensive Wrath of God. You're <laughs> almost always able to use the creature removal portion in a way that benefits you while also getting some bonuses by taking out you know, the person who has a bunch of artifacts or a bunch of enchantments or something, and, and you come out on top of that spell really, really often. Merciless Eviction kind of works that way as well if you are if you have access to black and white. Um, but, but I do think this is an area, for me at least the last few years, I've found myself customizing these to my deck way more than I definitely do with targeted removal. Okay. Um, you know, maybe if you're playing a, a commander that's indestructible, you want to lean more into, you know, things that destroy creatures versus exile creatures. Whereas you might want to run the Merciless Eviction in a deck where, you know, exile is not going to matter. It's going to kill your commander no matter what. So maybe you want to lean into that. Or Toxic Deluge is super efficient, but it's also nice if you have a really, a commander with a really big butt because it's very easy to tweak that and let your commander survive mm. and, and cast it for less than what your commander is. So like, there's just a lot of variance, I think, in board wipes where you can pick the ones that work best in your particular deck. Yeah, no, no matter what your deck is doing, there there's a board wipe that is going to kind of be, like Dana said, customized to fit the theme. Whether you need to gain life, you have Fumigate, uh, whether your playgroup runs a bunch of equipment decks, like there are ways to get rid of that too. Mm. Uh, there's just so many different board wipes that it's really hard to say that the, the old reliables, the standbys, are still that in 2022. Uh, and no matter what color you're playing too, if you want Azuri's Predation, you can flood the oh, board yeah. with a whole bunch of creatures. If you're playing Sea Creature Tybal, you have stuff like Whelming Wave and you have all these different ways to bounce creatures that aren't your own. Uh, the, every color has some sort of way to kind of get around it. Or if you're playing like tri Dragon Tribal, play Cruxifate, and then it's just a, a <laughs> better, it's just a, in Garrick's Wake, only better. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can adjust your board wipe. So yes, you're spending maybe five mana instead of four for Day of Judgment. But also like that's better because you're getting upside. I, what I, and if I'm playing a five color dragon deck, I 1000% am going to pay that one extra mana to only blow up my opponent's creatures over the four mana damnation. And, and that's also like something that you could customize there too. Matt, you've got a Vivictus Asmati the Dire deck. Mm -hmm. I dare say if you wanted to, potentially you could actually go forward with playing a Crux of Fate over another Wrath Effect just because you might not have any other dragons in the deck, but it could be the case that maybe you estimate when planning ahead that you might you know, be able to have a one-sided wrath that keeps your commander in play. Depends on how much you trust other people to actually have dragons, but that is a choice that you can make. And you're again, customizing all of those things very specifically to your deck. And that is again, where this planning ahead thing comes in because board wipes is such an easy way that you can actually see that manifest because now, as you say, of how customizable they are. Yeah, absolutely. If you're paying one more mana to even save just your commander, absolutely worth it. Yeah. If you have a dragon in the command zone, Crux of Fate, probably worth consideration. That's definitely a very interesting one for sure. And Matt, you had also mentioned being able to get rid of things like equipment and such like that, which moves us on to another form of removal here, another way of planning ahead, and that involves artifact and enchantment destruction, which some colors are really, really, really darn good at. For example, you, Mr. Matt Morgan, love your Reclamation Sages so much to the point that we now have an altar sleeve of you as the EDH Reclamation Sage, and it's super fun, but that's not your only favored or preferred way of destroying a bunch of my precious artifacts and no. enchantments, and I'm not salty about it at all, I promise. No, I mean, <laughs> pest infestation, that's one that I absolutely love that we we it seems like every single time they do a, 
a pre-constructed set, so like Commander 2021 or whatever, there's some sort of juicy artifact and enchantment removal spell in green that has some sort of bonus. Like, yes, you might be paying three mana, sometimes four, but you're getting massive upsides in those cases. Uh, but even then, like it's, it's totally worth it because you're getting rid of something that's a problem and you're getting something for yourself at the same time. I, I love these types of spells and, and green does it the best, obviously, because it's green and commander in 2022. And thanks a lot, Wizards of the Coast. But <laughs> I mean, every color has some sort of way that, yes, you, you can do the job at its basic level or you can pay just a little bit and you're going to get yourself a bonus at the same time. And I think there's just so many fun options at this point that you're almost silly not to be paying that one extra mana to get something special back. Yeah, the pest infestation is cool because you have things that could double up your tokens, for example, so you're killing artifacts and enchantments while getting even more tokens. Or another favorite of yours is that ruinous intrusion, which gets rid of an artifact or enchantment, and then you get to put a, just a herkin bunch of plus one counters onto something, mm -hmm. so you'll have gotten rid of my valuable five mana enchantment, and then put five plus one counters onto your Kyler Sigardian Emissary, which then buffs up all of your humans by plus five plus five, and this isn't a problem, I swear. <laughs> you're, you're making me like my decks more by talking about them. <laughs> So keep going. Yeah, sure. I'm a fan in, in these slots too, in, in green in particular. I, I'm a fan of Deglamour and Unravel the Aether, which are just the same card where you shuffle it into to the person's library. Um, you know, it's only two mana. It's the same as you'd pay for a Naturalize or a Disenchant. And it hits indestructible stuff. And it avoids graveyard triggers. So that, that Worm Coil engine that you don't want to see split into to two smaller Worm Coil engines, you just make them shuffle it away. And most mm. of the time, stuff can't be accessed in the library as easily as it can be accessed in the graveyard as well. So, like, there are just a lot of options. Um, if you don't want to deal with destroying things, there's, you know, ways to get around that as well. They work great for shuffling in Theros gods, for example. If you don't want to deal with that indestructible oh. god there, you can, you can play around that. There's just a lot of options here. I think this is also one, um, you know, unlike the creature removal stuff where... There's a little more variance and a little more customizability here based on maybe both how your deck plays and how your meta plays to a degree. Yeah, very, very fair. And also, not all hope is lost for other colors that have traditionally struggled to get rid of artifacts and enchantments. Like, we know that white and green are really good at getting rid of them, but then there's also been the introduction of new cards like Feed the Swarm in black, which can let you get rid of enchantments, which is a thing that we definitely didn't have the ability to do for a really long time. And also, I think it's worth noting some mass board clears in this area, like, for example, the 8 mana Ugin has a minus ability that gets rid of a bunch of permanents that have a color. Or there's also all is dust, which would also make everyone sacrifice permanents that have a color. And that can be an efficient way for some decks. Maybe you're playing Rakdos or maybe you're playing Demir. If you wanted to, those could be options if they're within your price range to get rid of a whole bunch of enchantments that might be plaguing you on the other sides of the battlefield all at once. I do think this kind of begs the question, though, if this is an area of customization that you guys explore personally yourself very much. Like, for example, there are other cards like Bane of Progress or even I'm thinking of Pernicious Deed, which take down just a bunch of things en masse, even if they're things that you control. Dana, is that a style that you prefer or do you, when it comes to the artifact enchantment stuff, is that a thing that you prefer pinpoint over mass removal? Um, I tend to prefer pinpoint over mass removal here, um, not exclusively, but I, I if I'm running an artifact or enchantment sweeper, it's because I I have a a secondary reason for doing so. Like I have Bane of Progress in a deck that cares about plus one counters, mm. so it's a sweeper that's that's also gaining me a little advantage because I you know I might well have a, a doubling season out or something, um, or, or or I guess a way to double those counters when it comes into play doubling season wouldn't work. But like <laughs> I have a little bit of added gas when I do that. So that's if I'm doing it for artifacts and enchantments, it tends to be for a reason. I mean, that right there, Bane of Progress, that's a tough one for me, too. I want to play it in Marin because it would be such a great, just a haymaker to bring back and just like completely demolish. I mean, this is an instance where I'm like, I would feel like I'm planning ahead. If I run up against like a Sithis player, for example, I can get that Bane of Progress and just ruin their day. Or there are a bunch of artifact decks out there. So I could get back Bane of Progress, destroy all the artifacts and enchantments. But the problem is, I'd also, if I resummon it, I'd be losing a bunch of my favorite cards in that deck, too, like my sacrifice outlets, which tend to be artifacts like altars and things like that so it's really tough that is a, a thing that i want to play but the planning ahead focus does kind of force me to not always be able to prioritize them even though they're so saucy looking well in deck construction can make a big difference here too talking about like blowing up your own stuff but i run um a card called patriarch scorn in my arden and sur equipment deck um it's a just a mass sweeper for just enchantments 
Um, I don't play any enchantments in that deck. Mm. It's like there's no downside for me to play that spell. It's also a spell that if I cast a white spell that turn, I can cast it for free. So there's plenty of times it's just a card that I play for no mana that takes out, you know, three or four enchantments at no cost to myself. But if it just takes care of one, if there's one enchantment in play, that's still oftentimes worth it for a free spell. I mean, I think a lot of times this really depends on your playgroup too. What are people in your playgroup playing? Are, are they playing Enchantress decks? Are they playing uh, super heavy artifact synergies? And you can kind of adjust that from there. Also, what is the goal of deck? Dana, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but I play some mass removal for artifacts and enchantments in those decks that I know that I can afford to have that happen and not set myself back too far. Mm -hmm. But in my Alila deck, for example, that's all artifacts and enchantments. Uh, I don't run a lot of mass enchantment and artifact removal because a lot of times it's going to set myself back just as much as it sets up the whole table back along with me. So I don't run a lot of that. So just it's deck dependent, but I think a lot of it too is playgroup dependent. I like that a lot. That that definitely can make a lot of sense. And that's a thing that is that's why there's no simple answer for it. And that's why knowing all of the options can be so important, because, yeah, Matt, I assume that you playing a merciless eviction to get rid of all of your own enchantments, but also some other people's probably not going to work out the best for you. Probably not the best option there. Probably not, which is I'm I'm not a smart man, but I know when not to <laughs> blow up my own stuff. <laughs> All right. So moving from those were some classic cases of removal, which, of course, will help you from, you know, help keep your opponents from running away with their crazy awesome board states or amazing commanders or just a bulwark of protective pillow fort enchantments. Things like that can be super valuable. But then that's also a thing that you definitely have to plan for, too. And this is a general category that we've seen present in basically every one of our own EDH decks. And that's protecting your own board. That's protecting your own commander. I mean, this is why Lightning Greaves and Swiftfoot Boots are so famous after all, because they give Shroud or Hexproof to your commander at a really, really cheap and repeatable cost. Even if your commander dies to a board wipe, for example, you can still play them again and equip really, really easily. But then there are some, you know, board saving spells. Dana, I'm sure you've got a whole bunch that you're a fan of. Yeah, um, you know, in green, I, I don't know if I have a green deck right now that doesn't have heroic intervention in it, <laughs> um, particularly after the last reprint where it went down in price. It's just so good. And it's not only in that case, it's not necessarily just about protecting your board. It's about protecting your board in a way that um, no one else is ready for. So the person who just spent six mana on that austere command, thinking that they were going to reset a bunch of things, just made your board state fantastic because you saved all of your stuff and everyone else lost a bunch of things. Like you're basically letting somebody else set you up for a win. It's not just a way to protect yourself. It's it's kind of a way to win a game in a way. If you can do a really good one-sided protection spell, that's very impactful on a game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Teferi's protection works much the same way, except for it's super expensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, your opponent's losing a lot of value because you get to preserve like an, your entire board state, they lose a lot of that value from whatever that board wipe was. Uh, so yeah, these cards are definitely something you just want to keep an eye out for. Um, Golgari Charm is a fantastic one because it has so much use. We talk about that card a lot. Well, I tell Dana not to cut the card a lot. Um, it's probably more accurate. But it's just such a great card because A, it can do so many different things, but protecting your board is something that's kind of, I dare say it's underrated almost. Yeah. Because I don't think I don't think enough players kind of value it enough. They, they, they like being proactive, which is great. I completely understand that urge. But then saving all of the work, it's like hitting the save button on your, on your save file when you're playing Resident Evil before a boss fight. It, you just want to make sure you're doing it. And there's, a, and there's a lot of ways to do this in white, too. I'm, I'm eerie interlude and ghost way, blink your stuff out till end of turn. So so they'll even get around things like Cyclonic Rift or like a Merciless Eviction that's going to exile stuff. Mm -hmm. They dodge a lot of different effects. And if you have creatures with Enter the Battlefield abilities, it's a way to reproc those. So like even if you're not trying to save your stuff, maybe you want to blink that Muldrifter one more time just to draw a few cards or something. Like there's a lot of utility in, in those until end of turn blink effects in white. And you also have ways in white to bring back a chunk of, if not all of your entire board site after a board wipe. Things like Cosmic Intervention is a really nice way to do that. Um, brought back will bring back two permanents, but Face Reward will bring your whole side back as well. So like there's multiple ways where you can let that board wipe happen and have everyone think, okay, that's, that's the end of this player. And then before the end of your turn, Face Reward and bring all your stuff back. 
It's yeah, this was such an I mean, we did an entire episode about just protecting your board. I believe it was episode 179. And it was really, really enjoyable to go through all of those different options because there are some there, Dana, that you just mentioned that are indeed customizable in that same way that we saw with some of the board wipes. And the responses to board wipes also giving you that same level of flexibility is huge. And there are some colors that are certainly famous for it. But even, you know, we've got new stuff like Tybalt's Trickery in red that has made me feel a lot you know, better about playing and actually piloting any red inclusive deck. Like I have a Karazakar deck, for example, and Tybalt's Trickery has made me feel so much safer against a bunch of the different stuff that my opponent could be doing in that deck. Or I have a mono red Martin Stromgald deck that gets a whole bunch of tokens in play and board wipes are really bad, but Tybalt's Trickery is a red counter spell that I'm able to use to stymie opponents from doing bad things to my tokens because I want to do bad things to the board with my tokens instead. So there's just a way to find a bunch of protection in a bunch of different areas. So once again, check out that episode if you want even further discussions on the protecting your board topic. That's episode 179. Super, super fun. But too much of my dismay. Um, this isn't the only thing that we noticed was a universal planning ahead sort of thing in uh, and across a bunch of our decks. Guys, do we have to do this next part of the show? Do we have to talk about graveyard hate and how ubiquitous it is in all of your EDH decks and how you always like to plan to have graveyard hate? And you're, Dana, do we have to? Do I, I think please? we have to for for your own good, no. Joel. You have to face your fears <laughs> here. I think this is what this is what this, this is this is this is for you. Is why we're doing this the, right now. So th th this segment is Joey's exposure therapy, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So go ahead and tell me why you always like to have different instances of graveyard hate and being able to exile cards from people's graveyards in a bunch of your commander decks. Go ahead. Well, so so graveyard hate is kind of a unique thing, I think, in this regard. I, I don't think the average player packs ways to deal with a mill deck, for example, or they probably aren't usually running up, you know, multiple ways to deal with a theft deck. I think those things tend to be a little more specific and you don't always run into them. People almost always use their graveyards, even if it's just casting Eternal Witness one time to bring back the best thing. Um, you're not, you know, necessarily doing crazy graveyard shenanigans, although people do that very, very frequently. Um, <laughs> but people just tend to, at the very least, do a little bit of stuff with their graveyard. Very few decks have no way to recur at least one or two cards. As a result of that, I think it's a good idea to always kind of have a plan to interact with your opponent's graveyard in some way. And luckily, Wizards has made that pretty easy for us commander players with things like Scavenger Grounds that you can just put in a land slot and not really have much opportunity cost used up if you don't use it. If you don't need to use it, it's still a land that comes into play untapped that taps for colorless mana. Um, you know, Bajuka Bog comes into play tapped, but other than that small tempo hit, you can still use that to thump somebody when they've got 30 cards in their graveyard and you're, you can tell they're ready to do something nasty next turn. Um, even the artifact answers to graveyards, things like um, Relic of Progenitus or we have Soul Guide Lantern and Lantern of the Lost fairly recently. They're just one mana and they can sit there until you need to use them and oftentimes can be used to just draw a card in, in the case of Soul Guide Lantern if you find yourself not using it or also draw a card and use it in the case of um, Lantern of the Lost. So there's not much opportunity cost for using those either. Uh, there's it, there's just a lot of reasons to run ways to deal with your opponent's graveyard and not a lot of downside to doing so. Dana, I don't like this. Please leave my graveyard <laughs> that, alone. Was that Thank too you. many answers all in one spiel for you, Joey? Yes. Yes, it was. It was a whole lot. It was it was too much. And and I think it's also important to note that like Scavenger Grounds shows up in 44,000 decks, which is a lot, but that is still only 5% of decks that could be playing it. Or Bajuka Bog only shows up in less than a third of decks that could be playing. The, I mean, to be clear, it's still 139,000 decks. That's a lot for Bajuka Bog, but it isn't actually necessarily a universal thing. Not all of the decks that could play it are playing it. And this is a point that you're really hitting home on, is that you like to have multiple of these effects, not just one of these effects, mm -hmm. which hurts my feelings, but I'm trying not to take it personally. But Dana did make a really good point. Like The opportunity cost is just next to nothing on so many of these cards that you're almost kind of encouraged to play at least a couple of them because that whole adage of if it's better to to 
have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Right. Having Soul Guide Lantern basically cycle away for two mana, like that's pretty great. Same with Relic of Progenitus. So just being able to have that th that threat there, you know, just in case I need it, I have this around. Oh, I need something else more. I'm just going to cycle it. I'm they're just going to can drip away. It's great. And yeah, that 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 oftentimes kind of overweighs it because they're they're whole cards that are included because they have cycling. Why not just put some colorless grave hate type of cards in there that also can cycle away? And that right there is the full point for this episode is that it's better to, as you said, have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Because we've certainly each run into different instances in game where someone has gone out of control and had we thought ahead a little bit more we would have been able to stop them from getting into that position or we would actually have an answer to get them out of that position i mean you guys have certainly seen me bust 21 creatures out of my graveyard before and a well-timed soul guide lantern or matt one of your personal favorites the scavenging oozes which synergize so beautifully with your other decks but it's just it's not it's not a problem it's fine it's great i'm, I'm happy for you to have those but like those are instances where you guys have been able to completely stop me from getting into those positions or we've seen people with indestructible board states but an exile based removal spell was the type of thing to finally unlock that and help dismantle it and actually planning ahead for those things in ways that are personalizable or customizable to what your deck is up to or that have low opportunity cost it makes all of the difference and i guess this means that the exposure therapy is working so thank you for bringing up <laughs> graveyard hate in this episode i admit it is a valuable tool to talk about i'm not i'm not mad about you exiling my graveyards you guys i promise glad to help Joey. yeah sooner or later somebody else is going to play a graveyard deck against you you're going to be like <laughs> oh yeah matt and dan are really smart guys i should have listened to them this whole time well uh, <laughs> they taught me everything i know here's the thing here's a really good example i'll use a very quick specific example before we move on but i do run graveyard hate in some of my graveyard decks for example in my marin deck i love the card living death which brings all dead creatures back out of the yard but i also love stuff like the callous blood mage or the bajuka bog to make sure that no one else has a graveyard at all and only i get to have stuff come out of my graveyard I just want to exile their stuff. And so I, I will admit that graveyard hate is valuable because I can't pretend that I haven't been a hypocrite this whole time. I am running graveyard hate because you're right. It is so valuable. And there are ways in which I, I had to plan ahead there to say, I want these living death moments to be super big, super explosive. And that means I have to run these things that will stop my opponents from getting benefit from my own stuff. And yeah, there's just a lot going into that there. So you're, you're right. It's definitely valuable. And even if I, I talk up a big game about, oh, my graveyards, my precious graveyards, I'm, I'm literally doing it too. So yes, completely. <laughs> so Joey, I shouldn't be surprised if you open one of our games on twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast with a, with a pre-game Leyline of the Void just to start things out. That, that's something you're going to start doing to me? Um, okay, I won't go that far because <laughs> oh. because uh, everything in moderation, including planning sure, okay. ahead, right? Leylines, Baby steps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, Joey's not going to be playing a rest in peace anytime soon. That's, that's a little bit too much for me. Baby steps for me, okay, you guys? Baby steps. <laughs> that's unfortunate, but we'll take what we can get. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so that was a specific uh, story example for a personal deck of mine in a specific situation. And those are interesting to talk about some specific commander centric uh, details that we've got and that we want to share. But that'll be in the second half of the show. Right now, I think what we ought to do is pause real quick and talk about some data. Let's challenge the stats. There's so much data on EDHREC that you know, we don't always agree with all of it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play. So what we like to do is challenge those statistics. Matt, would you mind starting us off this week? What's your challenge? So my challenge this week is not even in the top 50 cards from Crimson Vow. And I think that's uh, that's just incorrect. It's it's not quite like Soul Shatter being so far down the Zendikar Rising <laughs> list, but it's pretty bad. Um, so this card is almost quite almost a, a sign in blood. Uh, it's very, very close, but it happens to be a creature. Uh, so that creature that has a sign in blood type of ability is Fell Stinger. Dana, mm. you're welcome. Nice. Uh, so Fell Stinger is two and a black for a three, two zombie scorpion with death touch. But it also has exploit. Uh, so exploit was the keyword ability where you can, uh, when that creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. It doesn't have to be the creature you put into play. It can be something else. Um, and so when Felstinger exploits a creature, 
target player draws two cards and loses two life. Uh, this is fantastic in any sort of aristocrat strategy. If you have tokens that you don't care about, or if you just need a three mana sign in blood instead of a two mana sign in blood, you can do this as well. Um, this deck is, or this card, I should say, is only showing up in 1300 decks right now. It is outside the top 50 for Crimson Vow and people, this card is so much better than that. Uh, let's, let's get this working. Uh, Uvenwald Oddity is getting played more than this card, and that that is an oddity to me because <laughs> felt. I mean, Felstinger just it does so many good things. It's one of those very very high floor type of cards where at very worst it's three mana to draw two cards. Uh, blue players have been playing Divination for right or wrong for years. Uh, Felstinger is what Black's version of that. So uh, just make sure people, if you're no matter what strategy you're playing, if you're playing Black, you probably can take advantage of Felstinger exploiting something. I just, this card is so much better than 1300 decks, people. And Matt, you just said there too that it was like at worst, it's, you know, three mana, draw two, lose two. That's not even actually it's only at worst. It's also at worst a three mana, three two with death touch because you don't have to exploit it yeah, if you don't want to. Yeah, if you to. need a blocker, great. You have a death touch blocker. Cool. I love this thing. It's so it's also a zombie. So I'm playing it in my zombie deck. Like, oh my God, this love your challenge, Matt. Yes, come to the aristocrats' dark side. No, you, yes. you said you wouldn't play Rest in Peace. I'm not doing that, but <laughs> no, okay. I appreciate your vote. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, this actually kind of segues into my challenge for the week. Uh, my challenge is for my Wilhelt deck, where I am playing Felstinger, but Felstinger is not my challenge. My challenge is for a card that was actually recommended to me by some of the folks who watch our gameplay over at twitch.tv slash edhreccast. Chat had asked if I had ever cast Sakashima's Will in my Wilhelt deck. And, I mean, first of all, the portmanteau there, Sakashima's Wilhelt, it was too cute not to at least take a look. And so I did. And oh yeah, this is actually kind of incredible. And I'm sad I wasn't playing it sooner. So Sakashima's Will is that Commander Legend Sorcery, part of the Jessica's Will cycle, but this time the blue one, a four mana blue sorcery that lets you do both of these things if you control your commander. First, target opponent chooses a creature they control and you gain control of it. That doesn't end at end of turn. And second, you choose a creature you control and each other creature you control becomes a copy of that chosen creature until end of turn. So... Wilhelt is a zombie deck that makes just what I can basically only describe as a butt ton of zombie tokens all over the place. And when you get the opportunity to suddenly turn all of those tokens, decayed or otherwise, into instead of being those tokens, they are now like death barons, which give all of your zombies plus one, plus one and death touch. Or you turn them all into diagraph captains, which give all of your zombies plus one, plus one and damage your opponent if your zombies die or an undead war chief, which gives them all plus two, plus one. Yeah, turning a board full of like eight zombies into all being anthems and lords for each other, it's enormous. This has just so quickly become one of my absolute favorite spells to play in that deck. It currently doesn't show up on Wilhelt's page at all, and that needs to change. This is a powerhouse card for this commander, a bit of a sleeper, but it snuck up on me, and man, did it impress me. So. Matt, you and I are totally in sync. It's all about the zombies this week. Graveyards are the best, man. It's awesome. No, it's they're not. That's why you. <laughs> that's me, what, that you, you don't see. You don't say creature hate. You play grave hate <laughs> because you just, hate the worst part. Let me have it. Let me have it. We were almost there. You bro. can have it all. You can have all you want. <laughs> all right, Dana, wrap it up with your challenge. Um, my challenge this week is submitted to us by a listener, my life as John C. Um, and his challenge is on the card from Dissension, Weight of Spires. So this isn't a challenge for me, it's from a listener, but it's, you know, my kind of thing. A card no one's heard of from a set 15 years ago. <laughs> uh, weight of the Spires is an instant for one red, and it says, Weight of Spires deals damage to target creature equal to the number of non-basic lands that creature's controller controls. Um, it's only in 50 decks in EDH rec. Very, very infrequently is this not going to just kill whatever scary thing is in play. Certainly there's times someone's, you know, got a 14-14 out and you can't do anything about it with this, but very, very often, given how many non-basics most commanders player commander players run, myself included, perhaps especially, um, this oftentimes is just just a one-mana kill spell in red. Hmm. It definitely should show up in more than 50 decks. 
And I think that's a really good pick from from my life as John C. You know, I think this would especially especially be interesting. And in, what is the um, the Kaldheim god? Is it Toralf, the god of the hammer or god of fury? Who like if mm -hmm. you deal excess damage, then you can redirect that damage to other places. This could be a really interesting small removal spell to use on a greedy opponent such as Dana Roach, for example, who runs very few exactly. basic lands, um, to get a bunch of extra damage and chain a bunch of removal together for just one mana. This is a pretty interesting spell I've never even seen before. Yeah, and you know what? I, I don't think I have either, so it's a really good pick from, from my life as John C. I, I love that our Patreon submitted challenges are just becoming more and more obscure so that they get on Dana's radar. <laughs> exactly. It's working, and these are cool picks. That's, <laughs> that's the sure way to get me to pick it is Pick something weird from dissension. <laughs> very much, very much. Okay, now that we're good with our challenges, let's jump into the second half of the show. And we started broad in the earlier half of the show talking about some general contingencies that you want to plan ahead for. Someone's got a big scary commander, you want to have removal for it. Someone's got a bunch of different artifacts or a huge board, you want to have removal for that. Someone's coming for your stuff, you want to protect it. But let's get to some specific examples. Dana, what is a specific instance where one of your decks, this isn't, you know, brought across all of your deck building habits maybe, but specifically one of your decks has to plan ahead for a thing that is unique to the way that you play that deck. What's going on there? So I have a Kedis and Krom partner deck, Is It Partners, um, that's built around basically one-shotting the table with combat damage. Um, so Krom will swing in. I will load him up with a bunch of spells that, you know, either buff him up like a giant growth style effect in red. There's multiple ones that are similar to that. So, you know, turn him from a 4-4 into a 7-7 seven, seven or something. And then double his damage with Unleash Fury and then maybe copy that with a copy spell so it doubles again so i'm hitting everyone for like you know 24 28 whatever simultaneously thanks to thanks to kedis um definitely kills one person very often kills everybody that's how the deck plays can confirm and it's not a yes. problem at all it's totally fine. <laughs> no i'm kidding that's actually it's really really delightful to see it pop off but man it comes out of nowhere <laughs> well but, and, but because of that though i am then front loading a bunch of spells on one turn and if something goes wrong that i've just blown six spells and, and left myself wide open for a crackback so i have to have ways to protect myself from someone just casting a fog or someone removing my commander mid-swing and not only do I have to be able, be able to protect myself, I have to do so knowing that I might have just tapped out casting all of those spells for that alpha strike. So in that deck, counter spells that I can cast for no mana, they're always quite useful. They're super useful, if not necessary, in that deck. Fierce Guardianship or Deflecting Swat, the, the two that you can cast for nothing if you control your commander, are amazing there. Um, Pact Negation that I can just play for, for nothing and counter whatever someone's trying to do. And yeah, I have to pay five mana next turn, but there's probably not a next turn. So like maybe I don't worry about that there either. <laughs> um, not of this world that lets me cast it for free if I am countering a spell, targeting a creature with power seven or greater, which my commander is going to be at that point. What? What is this? Those free spells, or even things like Bolt Bend that I can arc a spell away from my commander if I need to for one mana is really, really useful. Being able to do things despite being tapped out in that particular deck is something that's very, very important. Not of this world a colorless counter spell that protects one of your, you can only use it for free to protect one of your big creatures, which in that deck it will be. Yep. Be what is this going on? That is a very interesting piece of protection there. I'm not... I'm not a fan of this, Dana. Stop countering my spells. I just want to kill your commander because I don't want you to destroy me. And Joey, are you even Veilstone Amulet there, which is I think a card you run in Feather as well. That's that's great for that. I can oh, yeah. I can turn a buff spell into kind of a counter spell. If someone's trying to kill my commander. That is also really really cool. Getting hexproof whenever you cast the spells can confirm that is a really really great one. And yeah, it sounds very much that you've got an all in like all of your eggs are in one basket for that strategy. So mm -hmm. protecting in this case, you're not just protecting your commander. You're protecting the one big turn. Right. It, it's not that, you know, Fierce Guardianship's great in almost any deck where your commander's important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is unique here. What's unique is I'm running like six or seven of these effects. Like, I, I don't just want one. I want to always have one in hand It's when, I, when I'm making that alpha strike. So it's not just a situation where mm. I'm running the cards because they're good. I just very much need a bunch of them. So I always have one at, at the stead. Matt, what about you? What's an example for one of your decks? Uh, so my Miri deck, for example, 
there's a lot of different ways that I can make sure, you know, I'm, I'm planning ahead and, and protecting kind of my win conditions. Um, Cryptolith Right is one of my favorite cards. A, not just because it creates a bunch of mana, but B, it's a free tap effect for Miri. Uh, Miri's defensive ability of if Miri is tapped, players can only attack me with one creature. Um, that makes sure that nobody can, I mean, yes, if Kedis and Krom is going up and over the top, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be dead no matter what. But if somebody has a go wide deck or they have a bunch of beaters, they're only able to, to use one at, uh, one to go at me, which means more than likely I'll have a blocker for it or something like that. So Cryptothrite being able to just be a free mana generating way to tap Miri is super helpful, helps me plan out that long game and kind of see how the direction of the game is taking. But also like something like Orin Frostfang, which looks not defensive at all, can actually be a pretty great defensive tool because it lets me attack freely with Miri oh. because it gives all my attacking creatures death touch. And a first striking death toucher is usually not something you want to tangle with. <laughs> so Orin Frostfang actually gives me a lot of leeway I can attack with Miri get her tapped very easily and set up my defenses to then play that long game I it's two cards that don't you don't you don't think oh my gosh Arn Frostfang that's such a great defensive tool but it is when you have Miri at the helm so uh, it's just a good way to do that but also primal order is another way that you know I'm, I'm planning for all the situations where maybe stuff isn't going well. Now, Dana challenged this card in Challenge Stats <laughs> years and years ago, so he did this to himself. But it's a great way to, uh, all things are going wrong. I can't keep creatures on the board. I still want to be able to deal damage. There's a bunch of greedy mana bases out there. Primal Order just deals one damage to every player during their upkeep uh, for as many non-basic lands as they have. Well, if you're playing Dana, that's a lot of damage in like two turns. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, so can confirm I have died to this card before. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they're just a bunch of ways that I can kind of look forward and position myself for no matter what the game is going to turn into. I have some options in that Miri deck that are going to help me get to that point where I can kind of navigate it a little bit better, even if I wasn't expecting it. Well, and now I'm thinking too, like those are some different options so that you can present yourself with opportunities to get your commander tapped so that you can be defended so that you'll always be able to, you know, another go wide deck isn't going to stand a chance against your go wide deck. But I'm also remembering the many, many times that you've killed us the entire table with a uh, throne of the God Pharaoh, which makes your opponents lose a bunch of life for each of your tapped creatures. So that's usually through an alpha swing, but maybe you have one of those tap effects. So you don't even need a profitable attack. You can just tap your entire stuff and then let your other enchantments and artifacts also deal damage beyond just combat. And that is a way for you to plan ahead. Even if someone is being super pillow 40, you've still got answers. And that is game winningly good. Yeah, it's just a nice way to have just those insurance policies. Really, that's all that we're talking about in a lot of these types of situations is things aren't going right you can only attack one person well you attack them but then they get the splash damage from throne uh throne the god pharaoh folks just oh joey <laughs> you, you're just tugging at my heartstrings this episode <laughs> I really I love, listen it. i've I've died to a lot of the cards that you play, man, because you play them really well and because you've thought ahead and that's why they're there and because they do indeed get you out of those sticky situations. I think I have you cornered and then no, you don't even need to attack me and I'm still going to die. And that's exactly the type of diversity or backup plans that you super need in those types of decks. I'll go to a personal example here. I have a Virtus and Gorm deck, which draws a lot of attention once it starts to do its thing. Um, Gorm is a really fun green 2-7 with Vigilance who must be blocked if able and must be blocked by two or more creatures if able. Um, so he's the distraction guy. And what he's distracting is the fact that I like to attack people with Virtus, which is this perfectly pleasant, never did anything wrong to anybody, three mana, one one with death touch, who may happen to cut your life in half every time that he pokes you. Um, it's, it's not a big deal, I promise. Except that it is a big deal. Every time that I start playing that deck and people see what the commander actually does, I poke someone for one damage, then they lose half of their life rounded up and drop from going from 40 to 39 and then from 39 to 19. Um, it draws a lot of attention is I guess the way that I should phrase it. People start seeing that if I start poking multiple people, suddenly the game is very skewed, a lot of life has been lost, and... It's not even a case where I need to protect my commander. I mean, that is true. I do need to protect my commander. But I also need to protect me because going straight to 19 life 
Not an experience that a lot of people are necessarily a fan of, and an easy way to get back at me for that is for them to attack me with their huge crowds of creatures, as Matt loves to do, or with their amazing beefed-up commander, as Dana loves to do. Uh, so in this case, the planning-ahead moment for that deck is Guys, I cannot even express, I have so many fogs in that deck because I need to, because I've learned just by playing that deck that my life total is significantly at risk. When people are all at 19 or keep cutting life totals in half, people want to attack me to cut my life total in half too. So I have had to load that deck up with things like Moments Peace and Arachnogenesis and Obscuring Haze just to try and stay alive because that deck invites a lot more ire just by dint of what its natural strategy is. So that is a weird thing that I've had to learn over the course of time with that deck is just observe how much attention it draws, not even to what the commanders are doing, but just to the fact that my life total looks different after I start cutting things in half. And fogs are the best way to try and stave that off. Yeah, if you're playing a deck that draws a lot of hate like Virtus and Gorm can, fogs are a great way. Like they, they give you an extra turn or two, which sometimes is all that you need because, I mean, when you deal half somebody's life in, in one combat step, you only need a couple more, actually. So, yeah, uh, having Fox just to buy a turn or two, that's that's perfect. That's exactly what you need from that kind of deck. Very, very much. And, and actually, this is the deck where I'm also trying out another thing of planning ahead. And this is a card I've mentioned in a few other episodes, but I want to keep doing more and more of it because I think it's working out pretty darn well. This is also the first deck where I tried out playing the card Viridian Revel, which is a green enchantment that says you'll draw a card whenever an opponent's artifact dies. And since there are so many treasure tokens running around these days, this felt to me like a way of planning ahead for the fact that a lot of people have so many treasure tokens from their smothering tithes and whatnot. And I'm pretty impressed with the results so far. This is the first deck where I was trying it out, but I'm going to keep doing it in other decks too, because I think that this plan is also working. And that is a nice way, like I need a way to draw all of those fogs so that I can pre prevent the combat damage that's coming my way. And so far, this has been a useful tool to help make that happen. Well, I, I'm going to zig here where everyone thinks we're going to zag. And we've been talking about <laughs> things we run in our decks to help with the strategy. It's maybe equally important to understand when you don't need to run those things. And oh. the example I'll talk about here is commander protection. Um, we talked about, you know, how useful lightning greaves are, um, swift foot boots, that kind of thing. But if you don't need those, that frees up slots to use in other things in your deck. Um, you know, I have two commanders with hexproof. I, neither of those run any way to protect the commanders because it's just built into the commander. Um, I have an Athreos Shroud Veil deck. Athreos is number one, not a creature half the time when I play him. So he's kind of extra protected there and he's indestructible when he is a creature. Um, very difficult to remove. So like I just don't, for the most part, need to worry about saving Athreos. I have a Jeru um, with Eyes Open deck. Jeru does something when he comes into play and then after that doesn't do very much for the most part. Um, <laughs> I sacrifice Jeru half the time. So if you want to remove Jeru, go right ahead and do that. You've just saved me from tapping that high market. Um, <laughs> and you've wasted a spell in the process. Great. Go for it. I'm just going to cast him again anyway. So there are some decks where you find out over the course of playing it, you just don't need to devote slots to those kind of things. And I think being able to differentiate when that is is a very important thing to figure out for your decks. Um, one that I discovered in playing it, uh, talking about playing Voltron with Kedis and Krom and how useful it is to save my commander there, I have an, an SCR and Arden equipment deck. And I had assumed when I built it, I would also need ways to protect my commander who was swinging in. Uh, SCR Wardwing Familiar has Ward 3. So early in the game, he's generally protected, but after that point, if people want to remove a commander who's wearing a bunch of equipment, they will spend the three mana. So Ward doesn't necessarily do very much after turn four or five or something. Except for I discovered I was running a bunch of you know, Sword of X and Y in that deck, and I just accidentally, a bunch of times, by the time we got to the point in the game where Ward was no longer effective, I had pro-white and pro-blue and pro-black anyway. Oh. So people couldn't target my commander even if they would have wanted to. Um, in addition, it's a blue deck, so I have a few counter spells. I'm not super counter heavy, but I had a few. I found I just didn't need Swiftfoot Boots or I didn't need Lightning Greaves because the swords and things like Commander's Plate just accidentally gave me protection from a lot of removal colors, and therefore I freed up a couple slots. So being able to figure out where you don't need to run these things too is very, very useful. Kind of the negative space around the things you need to run, knowing what that space is, is very, very helpful. 
Yeah, that, a lot of people they they tend to overvalue certain things, and sometimes if you're if you're filling your deck up with a bunch of different options, um, maybe you don't really need to. And another thing too, like I could see people in that Arden and Essior deck, for example, Dana. Um, people are running a lot of things that give you free equips, but do you really need those? Mm. Like you already have that effect in the command zone, so you don't right. need to run Sigarda's aid to skip those equip costs because that's already been taken care of in the command zone. And I did wind up pulling Sigarda's aid for that reason. There you there, go. There you go. Great mind. Great minds think alike. Yep. So, Joey, where is your cool thought? <laughs> well, no, I totally agree because that redundancy is usually a thing that you totally want. Like if I play a ghostly prison in my deck, I'm probably also going to want to reach for a propaganda or a windborn muse to go alongside them. But it might be the type of deck that is already insulated because it makes a whole bunch of tokens, for instance, or I give all of my stuff vigilance. It might already be the type of deck that is actually insulated from decks that do go wide. And what I should do is focus focus my attentions in different ways. That is certainly a thing that I've seen several times where the deck is already, it's good against that strategy and you should plan ahead for an entirely different thing. Maybe your deck is actually not weak against a go-wide strategy, but it's weaker against something that goes tall and that is the type of thing that you need to plan more for. And Dana, when it comes to the things that you are planning ahead by not planning ahead, the biggest example for me is probably that there are decks where if you've got that grave hate, I just, I'm just, uh, you know, that's it. You've got me. I just don't plan ahead for that because I don't think that it is necessarily worthwhile for me to do so. Like, yes, if you play a rest in peace, I'm going to want to try and find my reclamation sage to destroy it as soon as possible. But I also think that if I plan too much for a backup or to get a plan B or a plan C, well, if I draw too many of the plan B and plan C cards in the hand that is trying to make plan A happen, I won't be able to make plan A happen. Like plan B, planning ahead too much can sometimes be the thing that causes you to stumble in the first place for what you're actually, your main strategy is trying to do. So when it comes to graveyard hate, I just buckle and I'm just like, yeah, you totally got me. I was all or nothing here. You crumbled this glass house and good on you. But if you hadn't, I definitely would have got there because that's the way that I've organized the deck. If you can't stop it in exactly that way, it's totally going to get you. But if you do manage to find exactly those answers, well done. And that's not a thing that I feel the need to necessarily have a bunch of things to be afraid of. I feel like if I'm too afraid of some of those things that other players could do, especially when it comes to something like Grave Hate, then I'm not going to make my deck actually work in the first place if no one does have Grave Hate. Does that make any sense? A absolutely. Um, it it kind of comes back to that opportunity cost thing we talked about. There's almost no cost for me as a deck builder to put that scavenger grounds in the deck or put a bajuka bug in the deck mm. or even then add a soul guide lantern. Um, however, if I'm playing say black or something and I'm, I'm afraid of someone playing, um, you know, enchantments and I am like, well, I, I have one card that can deal with them and feed the swarm. Maybe do I need to also run scour from existence or do I need to run unstable obelisk or something? I mean, you could, those are ways that are colorless to deal with enchantments, but is the opportunity cost of, of spending seven mana worth it? Or would you rather be like, I just lose this game, I guess. And the next game I'll be fine because I'm, because I've got good cards in those slots and odds are I'm not going to encounter that problem again. Like you have to find what that midpoint is between <clears throat> running answers that don't maybe hurt your deck too badly. Or just being like, I can't deal with that problem because the cost of running the answers that are available to me is just going to be too much for my deck to bear. Very, very much. This is kind of an interesting... I, I love that we've come in a weird way full circle where the one of the morals that we are taking away from this episode is that one of the things you can do when planning ahead for contingencies is to not plan ahead. Are we like patting ourselves on the back for being lazy in our deck building? Is that what's happening right now? I think this is it. We, we've gone from Facebook to meta is what we've done. <laughs> there we go. Nice. Well played. Like th this is the, the matrix resurrections of, of the podcast where we, we insist upon ourselves. But I mean, I, I guess you're, you're planning ahead by knowing you have no plan. I mean, what? <laughs> I, I, the, the, the best way to plan ahead is to the, never right, plan at all. There's a logic to it, I suppose. <laughs> 
I don't think that's really the, the you guys, you, Matt, you're, that frog in your throat is twisting <laughs> my words here. That's not what I mean. I just think that, you know, a, a way planning ahead doesn't always involve action. It just involves knowing what the things are yes. and knowing which ones are worth planning ahead for, because you still want your thing to be the streamlined bullet train that it is. You know, I, if you exile my graveyard when I'm playing my Mimiplasm, you super got it. But that deck is so fast that I don't want to take space away from being able to enact that strategy in the first place. So well done. I appreciate it. And heck, you may even see different things that I've had to plan ahead for, including graveyard hate, which I'm still not salty about. I promise it's totally fine. I think you are, though, because you keep bringing it up, Joey. (laughs) (laughs) Like as a necromancer myself, like and and you're like you say it like like you're angry, but you're you're not (laughs) trying to be angry. Like there should be a a phrase for that, like nicey meanie. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. And I think that it would be interesting if this was also an area where you guys didn't plan ahead and didn't pack graveyard hate against me. Maybe maybe that's something you could try. Maybe that's the moral of the episode. This is not working at all. Well, I, I think we tried to give a bunch of specific examples because it's just easier to speak in specifics than it is in generalizations regarding you know exact situations where we planned ahead. Um, but like this is, I think, just something that applies to every single deck for the most part. Like, just I would say that's that's my final piece of advice here. Isn't anything specific about any of my decks. It's just take a look at your decks and really think about what things does this deck need to plan ahead about, or what things does it not need to worry about. Like, can I just skip this thing because either a the deck naturally has some built-in defenses against it, or b is the cost of planning ahead against that that particular thing too prohibitive to bother doing? And I think that's mm-hmm. like taking that kind of look at your deck, I think is very, very valuable. Very, very much. Yeah, this was a really fascinating episode. Dana, thanks so much for suggesting this topic. It was really, really fun. Um, and listeners, we would also love to know what are the different contingencies that your unique decks have to plan ahead for? What unique situations appear that you have to plan ahead for those decks? Or what are some other things that are generally across a whole bunch of your decks or different situations that you plan for? And is it based on meta or is it based off of how you perceive EDH going overall? We'd really love to hear from you. But with that, fellas, let's call this episode to a close. If our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can still find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRetCast. Uh, we have guests on every single week, so make sure you tune in for all of the awesome gameplay that we have. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on other podcasts, CMDR Central. I am writing articles for both EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRetCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Josh Lequai and the whole team at The Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>